All right, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome to our Taco, Tequila, and Theology House. <laughs> we have no official name. I like that one better than Conversations. Redeemer Community Church puts this on every summer. Uh, we'll meet for, for four of the months during the summer, uh, in which we just take on a different theological topic and talk on it for about 50 minutes or so. We'll take a break. Uh, the bar will be open for a while. And then, uh, and then we'll have Q&A time. In the past, we've always done it at a coffee house. This time, we think the questions will be a little livelier. Um, I hope so. Jeff is going to be the one up here teaching tonight on regeneration and what does it mean when you believe the gospel. The reason we do these theological coffee houses or taco tequila houses is there's some subjects that you would like to just go a little bit longer on on Sunday evenings when we meet, but it really doesn't lend itself to that. And so we try to pick different theological topics that we can uh, go at in length and let you ask questions so we can really dig in deeper. And uh, regeneration and what happens when one believes the gospel is one of those things that come up several times. Um, and so that's going to be our topic tonight. Jeff's going to come up here. And uh, Jeff is the associate pastor at Redeemer Community Church. And I'm handing it off to him now. That was really nice. We should do that a lot more at church. A lot more applause. If anybody needs to stand up to do it, that's fine too. All right, so I'll try to talk a little bit louder for those of you in the back. Um, okay, so if you've heard me teach before in any context, you know that uh, I, I kind of gravitate towards asking really big, big questions. Like going kind of 10,000 feet and just trying to see kind of basic questions. And I think that some of that goes back to the fact that I spent a lot of times, like a lot of years growing up in the faith where I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> um, I mean, I had some idea that what was going on, and, and, and the people around me were really encouraging and helpful and, and all that, but, but for the most part, like big concepts, I just didn't get them. Like I, I knew how to do little things, um, like I got rid of like a bunch of CDs, so I knew how to do that, like I knew how to do those things after camp. Uh, but. But real issues of the faith and growing in the faith and trusting in Christ and those kinds of things like that, that was a lot harder for me. And so I like to, whenever it comes time for us to spend time together teaching and examining the scriptures and asking questions, to ask really, really big questions and then see if we can work our way down to some things that we can really put our weight into and, and we can really hold on to those kind of handholds of life when everything's kind of slipping and falling apart and you, those things that you just hold on to and you know that it's going to be okay. And so those, those are the kinds of questions that I like to ask. And so with a topic like this, um, many people have asked if tonight with the topic of regeneration, if we're going to get lizards and we're going we're to cut the tail off and then in time we're going to see the tail come back. We just did not have the budget for it. Um, it's a great, great visual. Uh, maybe one day. <laughs> but, but the question that I kind of want to start off with is this. What do you do? Now some of you, your, your first thought might be like, your job? 
You know, that kind of question, like, what do you do? Well, my job, like, that's what I do. And what are all the other things that you do? The choices that you make day in, day out, those kind of simple choices, those simple life moments, like, what do you do? And why do you do those things? Why do you do the things that you do? And I'm not just talking about like the good things, the things that you like Instagram. I'm not talking about like when, when like your food is perfect or your child is perfect or whatever it is and you take the photo and, and everyone's like, oh, I hate myself because my life's not as good as their Instagram life. And like, not that, but the, the choices that you make, like what you do, why do you do it? What's forming? What are the commitments in your life that shape the way that you make those everyday decisions? What do you do? Why do you do it? Now, there's a modern philosopher, uh, 20th century philosopher, he, uh, who's a French philosopher, and his name was Jacques, uh, Jean, let's see, Leotard is his last name, which is cool if your name's Leotard. If you're a communications major, always start with a quote from Leotard. Uh, it's it's going to go over, or just a French philosopher. Um, but uh, Jean-Francois Leotard, uh, he wrote about the postmodern condition. He, he, he actually wrote a book called The Postmodern Condition, which I think really speaks into our context of how we think and the choices that we make, and it kind of speaks into our culture. And so Leotard said this, his kind of like truncated, what is his... Uh, extreme simplification of the postmodern condition. He, he called it this. He said, it's the incredulity towards meta-narratives. So it's easy. See, that's a simplified incredulity towards the meta-narratives. No, the incredulity, that means we don't trust in the idea of a big story. We don't trust that there are just overarching big story things and that everything falls under these big story ideas it's that we resist that. And instead, one of, the, one of the things that happens when we do that, instead of believing that there is a big story, we, we turn all of our attention onto ourselves. And I have a story. And that's what life is about. So that first deception, that first lie, is that there's no big story. There's just the individual. And then the second lie is that experiences everything. What you experience and how you experience, that's how you define everything around you. I like this, I didn't like that. And so when you have these experiences, then you decide what's true, what's not, what you like, what you don't like, and that's how you kind of categorize everything. So there's no big story, and what I experience, what I feel personally, you don't have to feel it, you don't have to experience it, but it's special and meaningful to me and therefore I will derive meaning and truth out of that. The third thing is that nothing has to change. I can believe those things and I can live that way and I can like those things and I can derive meaning from those things and that can be special to me and nothing has to change. So, if you will, if you will agree with me in this time with all these different things moving and shaking, and, and the deal is, this is closer to life, right? So, with all of these things, can we actually think about what we do and why we do them and what kind of influences are challenging that? Because then when we ask that question, when we really say that something in me does need to change, I don't really like 
some things about me or the things that I do or the choices that I make or the things that I think, the things that I don't put on Facebook, the things that I don't put on Instagram, the things that I don't share with anyone, those things need, need to change. And so when we realize that, when we realize that things do need to change, in the cultural current that's kind of sweeping us along, we say, well, that's a personal choice. I have some personal, I need to get, I need to really hunker down to my commitments. I need to, I need to get serious. I need to recommit. Any bells yet? Okay, so I need to, I need to really need, just focus in and I need to rededicate myself to these things because this time, this time is going to be different. We have this do-it-yourself mentality. Faith is something that the individual then decides to go to work at. And so I'm going to build this up and I'm going to get it nice and strong. I'm going to build this faith up. I'm going to change the choices that I'm making and I'm going to get these things straight. And then what, what happens? The, the wind blows and the seas roar and then everything kind of falls apart again. So these lies, there's no big story. It experiences everything and nothing has to change. And herein, this, this is why talking about regeneration, this doctrine of the church, why talking about it, although most of you probably went into this not believing it could be controversial, like we didn't pick like the most hot topic issue, it becomes really controversial and it becomes really uneasy and discomforting inwardly. Now, this isn't the kind of thing that you just go out and debate with people. This is something that wars kind of within the self. This, these questions of who am I and what am I doing and what has happened to me if I'm a believer. You see, we're confronted with the fact that there is a grand story. There is a big story. Now, yes, you do have a story, but there is a, a bigger story. Your story is a part of another story. Your story is redeemed by a bigger story. And so being so myopic and so focused on our own story distracts us from this bigger, grander story. So there is a big story. Not only that, experience is critical, but experience is, is not how we then derive our understanding. That's not how we get our theology. Is just from what we've experienced. That's a dangerous thing. Because if you experience something different than I do, then we end up in very different places, don't we? But if there is a larger story, if there is a greater truth, and that truth is revealed in the scriptures, if that's true, and if you believe that, then that means that we can understand our experiences by our theology. The Word of God. The, what, and theology is just a, a, a bigger way, a, a grander way of saying thinking about God. The way that we think about God would be the scriptures. That would shape the way that we think about God. And then the way that we think about God and that, how that makes us think about ourselves then helps us to understand the things that we experience. So it doesn't eliminate experience. It just repositions it. So... If we can be rooted in a theology, if we can be rooted in an understanding of God and life and faith, then we can come to a question like this and say, well, what is regeneration? Now, there are two times where you will see the word regeneration in the English scriptures. Two times it comes up. Now, it's represented in a lot of different metaphors, but really you're going to see regeneration only in two locations. Once in Matthew, when Jesus is speaking, 
and teaching, and then another time it's going to come up in Titus, in one of Paul's letters. Now the word regeneration comes from the word uh, palingencia. All right, so communication majors, like so you, you'll start with a leotard quote, and then you move to an impronounceable word like palingencia. Now for a kid that had a speech impediment growing up, these are all quite tricky. It's okay, I had speech therapy in a broom closet in Western Kentucky, so everything worked out great. Uh, so really the, the word palingencia, it's these two words, these two Greek words kind of brought in together. Palin, which means again or new, and gentia, where we get genesis, is birth, a new birth, being born again. Now, for those of you that can remember uh, 1976, one thing that happened back then was that Jimmy Carter was running for president. And he gave an interview that was quite, uh, was quite a buzz for a long time. It's actually still, um, these are stats, uh, it's still the number one selling Playboy interview, Playboy magazine. The number one selling Playboy magazine ever was the one that Jimmy Carter, presidential candidate, gave an interview. First presidential candidate to ever make this mistake. And, and he gave this interview and at the very end of it, the guy's leaving it, and this whole thing is shaped with this idea of Jimmy Carter is a born-again Christian. So that's, that moment, him giving that interview, actually defined the way our, our culture, American culture, still recognizes the phrase born again. Now, the way a lot of that was also shaped is also that same year, 1976, Chuck Colson, who was a part of the Watergate scandal, he was indicted for being a part of that and then he went to prison for uh, a number of months. And before he went into prison, he became a Christian. And he released a book called Born Again. And in those two times, the, the way that the culture around Christianity kind of understood what was meant by that phrase, born again, was second chance. You see, with Chuck Colson, he was talking about how uh, he had, yes, he had participated in these things that led to all of the investigations and Watergate and all that scandal, and then he went to prison. And so people thought that this whole, I'm going to become a Christian now thing was about this second chance. You, you might have also seen just yesterday when Mark Sanford was at South Carolina where he got a congressional seat, and he got up, uh, he was the one that went hiking on the Appalachian Trail, which really meant that he was with a mistress somewhere. Anyway, it's crazy business. But he got up and he gave a speech about it, and he said, I believe in a God of second chances. And that second chance translated into a second life in politics, this second chance. And what we have to realize from the onset is that the born-again idea, I looked at a terrible, terrible definition of this online. I, those websites where people supply their own definition, um, they really fascinate me because it just kind of captures like what some people think words mean. And one of them was uh, a born-again Christian is the kind of Christian that gets really heavy into drugs and almost dies, and then they turn their life around and they say, I don't want that kind of life anymore. I'm born again. It also had to do with uh, men or women that had lived a salacious lifestyle and kind of wanted to rewind it back there a little bit, and so they're born again. It's a second chance. But that's not what we're talking about, right? That's not what Jesus means when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says in John 3 that you must be born again. He's not saying a second chance because guess what? 
Second chance, you're gonna blow it. Third chance, you're gonna blow it. Fourth chance, you're gonna blow it. We can keep going with this. We've got the room for a while. We don't need a God of second chances. We need a God who changes us. And that's what we mean by being born again. Regeneration, palingencia, this new birth. When we see Jesus use it in Matthew chapter 19, he's talking about a regeneration of the earth. He takes this word regeneration, this word palingencia, he takes this idea that was in a philosophy that had started about 500 years before he was walking on the earth. And he takes this philosophy where they think that everything turns over and over and over. The world, people, reincarnation, that kind of an understanding. And he takes that And he uses that word to say, no, there's going to be a palingencia, there's going to be a renewal of all things, but it's going to happen one time. And that's when all of this becomes the kingdom of God, the renewal of the heavens and the earth. That, that palingencia, that regeneration, that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19. See, we need to be changed, and that is what regeneration is. It is that kind of change. J.C. Ryle, who is uh, an Anglican bishop, he he said these words, like end of the 1800s, I believe. Um, He said this, regeneration means a change of one's heart and nature when they become a Christian, when they become a follower of Christ. It's a change of one's heart and one's nature. And this is uh, distinct from saying anyone who just professes the name of Christian or the culture of Christianity or just participating in things. It's even more than one who just associates with Christianity. It also differentiates between someone who just says that they agree with the concepts of Christianity. Maybe more pointedly, that they agree with some of the moral goodness or the moral benefits of Christianity. They They just kind of zero in on, well, this will probably make me a better business leader or maybe a better dad or whatever it might be. Like, maybe this will just help me get that morality that I've been looking for. It's more than that. This is saying that the person who trusts in Christ, who is a follower of Jesus, it is a, a change in their heart and their very nature. It is this change that makes all the difference. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see it much more specifically kind of zeroed in on in the New Testament, but it's talked about in the Old and the New. In Ezekiel chapter 11, he talks about the stony heart being replaced with a heart of flesh. In Acts 3, Peter calls it repenting and being converted. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about being quickened from the dead and from our trespasses and our sin. In Colossians 3, it's putting off the old man and his deeds and putting on the new man. In Titus 3, where we see that word regeneration specifically in palingencia, it is the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It is that great change of the heart and the nature. It's transformation of the whole inner person. It's that change, that bias change of the heart towards God and the scriptures, towards sin, and towards the world. Now, why does this matter so much? I just want to, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer it in, inwardly. I, I, I actually want you to do this, whether you, you like me or not, okay? So let's just, let's try and, try and do this. 
Have you ever, and this is for the people in the room who uh, consider themselves to be Christians, for those of you who are Christians here, here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered if you are not saved? Like have you, has that thought ever crossed your mind? I mean, have you ever had like those kind of moments like when no one else is around and, and, and you're kind of just, you're analyzing just kind of your life and you're just kind of looking it over and you look at these things and you just say, I'm not talking about just the last night of camp. I'm talking about at other, other contexts of your life. Those who have never been to a Christian camp, I feel like you've missed out on so much and you've also not. Like it's... Um, <laughs> There are some amazing ones, and I'm thankful that every now and then I get to be a part of some of those amazing ones, but, uh, but my goodness. Um, anyway, but have you, have you ever asked that, that question? Have you, have you ever asked it and just, and just wondered? Have you ever asked it and it kind of overcame you and you, you didn't just like peruse the question, like the question wrestled you, and, 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 it, and it was... It was a difficult thing to consider. If you've ever, ever, ever thought about that, then that is why the doctrine of regeneration matters. That's, that's why it matters if you know what this means and we study where, what, where we see this in the scriptures and what these promises mean. If you've ever asked that question. This is what regeneration is, and it's this divine work of God. It's the changing of the inner person. It's the changing of the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength. It is that new creation that we're told about in Scripture. An example, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 16, if you want to open your Bibles or open an app, an application on some kind of electronic device, you can do that as well. I'll give you a couple seconds. I always feel bad because like if, in a lot of these contexts when you're saying, if you've got a Bible with you, open to this, and then the person starts reading before you can even find it, and then you say, well, I'm never bringing my Bible again. Don't be that guy. All right, hopefully you found it. It's Acts chapter 16. We're going to take a, just a quick look at this snapshot of Lydia. Chapter 16, we're going to begin with verse 13 here. All right. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, he went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we were supposed to, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, that's important, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, a whole lot just happened there between hearing what was heard and then then after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she's a worshiper of God. That means that she, she would have heard about Yahweh. She would have understood who Yahweh was, that she was seeking to worship him, but did not know, as we've seen a number of times in Acts up into verse 16, that there were these people that had heard of Yahweh. They, they knew who he was. They were seeking to worship him, but they had not yet heard the good news of the gospel. And here, 
the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the gospel. So that work that we see right there is the work of God in bringing new life. He opened her heart to transform her, to transform her heart and her thinking. And she was then confessing this belief and that's what led to her baptism. So just like in the Great Commission that was, they were being sent out, it was to tell people to repent and to be baptized. And that's, that's what we see here. Paul is doing exactly that. And Lydia had her heart opened by God. Notice that she didn't open her own heart, but she had a response. She had a response to that. She reacted to what God was doing, and she was responsible for that reaction. She had a reaction that was called out from her, and she was baptized. This is what regeneration is, this divine work of God to change the inner person. And again, this can be discomforting. This can be a little unsettling. One, like I mentioned before, because the cultural currents that kind of shape the way we think about ourselves and the way that we make decisions and, and who we are as individuals. Another thing is it's, it can be unsettling because, and what we're going to move to next, we, we have to talk about why it's necessary why is regeneration necessary? What's the problem that needs to be fixed? And when we look at that, when we actually consider what that is and what that means, that, is, that can be disturbing. And maybe even surpassing that, how disturbing that can be, recognizing that we can't change it, recognizing our inability to create this change that we so desperately need, that is unsettling as well. So... Why is regeneration necessary? What is the problem? And we don't want to hear people say this, but if we are left alone with the question, we, we would answer that, yes, something must change in me. We are not as we should be when we are apart from Christ. And so regeneration is necessary because of the exceeding sinfulness and rebellion in our hearts. We not only need to be cleansed of the guilt, which is something that we talk about quite a bit, that cleansing of guilt, that's the atonement, that's justification. We've actually done a, a theological coffee house on the atonement. You can find that on our website and we can have this discussion further on that, on that topic. But we, we do emphasize that one regularly, but not only do we need to be cleansed from the guilt of sin, we need to be set free from the desire to sin. We need to be set free from the power of sin. This is necessary. It's also necessary for us to enter to see the kingdom of God. If you still have your Bible out, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're picking up on verse 1 where Jesus has been teaching and now a man named Nicodemus comes to him. John chapter 3. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There we get that kind of glimpse of both that problem that you must be born again, and then also that startling wildness that it seems with the Spirit, that He goes where He desires to go, doing as He wishes See, this is necessary that you must be born again. So here's this man who is of the seed of Abraham, and he's, he's saying he, he feels like he has this good footing. He's this ruler. He's a learned man. And yet he is not perceiving and understanding that he must be born again. Now, Jesus was the first one to use this metaphor of being born again as a symbol of conversion. A lot of Uh, kind of mystic religions after this point pick up on this phrase of being born again and that born again uh, state being being some kind of conversion or newness but but this was unique to what Jesus is teaching at this point that someone must be born again someone alive not reincarnation not where someone dies and then they come back their spirit into some other body but that someone alive would be born again And Jesus uses this metaphor to talk about what has to happen for someone to enter into to see the kingdom of God. It's necessary that we understand this concept of the desperate state of humanity, that we have to be born again. And if we belittle this disaster of the fall, so see if you can hold on to this one with me here. If we belittle the disaster of the fall, then we belittle what we have been rescued from. Do you see that? If if we make it just a bunch of mistakes and we just need a second chance and we just need a better go at this, like I'm older now, like I'm gonna gonna really make some good, I'm gonna rededicate this, I'm I'm gonna get focused, I'm gonna get disciplined and then then we're gonna get this right. You see, we we don't need that second chance. We need a change. And if we if we belittle what it means to rebel against God, if we're if we're belittling those things, then when it comes to the rescue, when it comes to redemption and reconciliation with the living God, when it comes to those things, we're going to belittle those things too. And and so I would like to lovingly kind of confront you in that that if you have a small view of sin, if you have a small view of sin, then you have I would imagine you have a very small view of God's rescue. And if you have a small view of God's rescue, it probably means that you have a small view of the fall. And what we have to do is see these things as we ought to, that we have eyes to actually see the great disaster of sin and the great rescue of God. I know that what we're talking about can be unsettling, but we have to look this problem in the eye because we must be born again. So we know what it is. It's a change of heart. It's this transformation of the heart and the nature. And we know why we need it. It's that sin and rebellion. But how does this happen? I know what it is. I know that I need it. How do I get this? How does it happen? 
You see, regeneration is necessary, but we can't do this on our own. That would be the second chance kind of mentality. Like if I just, if I work hard enough, I can, I can make, I can really get those bootstraps and kind of lift myself up and I can make this work. We need regeneration, but we cannot do this by works done by us in righteousness. We see this, if you would turn now, into chapter 3 of Titus. Titus chapter 3. I'm going to have to move along a little fast, so get to turning, all right? So we, we got a lot of ground to cover, all right? Okay, chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, I'm not sure if you picked up on it because I read it kind of quickly and you might not have it in front of you, but something that happens in this passage is quite phenomenal. We see at work all three members of the Trinity— We see God rescuing us. We see God coming in with his great love. We see the work of the Spirit in bringing this regeneration, washing us, the inward man, the inward person being washed and cleansed and renewed. A new creation being made, that work by the Holy Spirit. But if you look again, if you just kind of watch the the movement of the words there. He saved us not by works, but by regeneration through Christ. You see all of this working together. You see the triune God working in concert, in harmony to regenerate, to bring new life to the dead. We see this again. I'll just read this quickly. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says that according to his great mercy, he, meaning God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He caused us. This is a work that he is doing, that he causes this new life to come to the dead. We see it again in Ephesians 2 where the dead and the sins and the trespasses, he causes this life to come because of his great love with which he loved you. He seated you with Christ. He rescued you with Christ. New life. Regeneration is the work of God alone, but we react to it. We participate in it, and that participation is this expression of faith. So that we say with all confidence that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, that in, anyone who calls these words out and expresses this faith and this trust, because this is the work that God is doing, that he would bring about faith and union with Christ and regeneration, which is this new life, this new nature, this new desire in men and women, that they would long not for their selfish ways, but for the ways of God. It is a work that he does, and we react to that work. And that reaction is expressed, I like the phrase, it's it's a beautiful one, that the first cry of this new life, this first cry of being born again, the first cry that is heard is the cry of faith, the cry of trust looking upon him who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That we would become that. That We wouldn't become that by hard work and 
good discipline, but that we would become that by the work of God. And then out of that would come the discipline and the hard work. We would react to what he has accomplished. That we would no longer be trying to earn this redemption, earn this regeneration, but that we would live out of that redemption. Because God is not a God that says, I love you, but. It's not, I love you, but. We're gonna need to work on some things. He says, I love you now. Go. Walk in the newness of life. Walk by my spirit. Abide in my love. Listen to my commandments. Trust me. Trust me in a faith that I supply, a trust that we fan into flame. Trust me. See, we have to see that relationship between being born again and believing in Christ. We see that in John chapter 3, right after he says that you must be born again, is the John chapter 3 that most people can't avoid but knowing that whosoever would believe. This belief in this new life, this belief in being born of God are tied together. That one cannot believe without this new life, which we'll see becomes really, really important to hold fast to. So how and when does it happen? It happens through God's work, the Father, through the Spirit, through the Son, in redeeming and ransoming His people, making them sons and daughters, those whom He has called and caused to be able to call out, Abba, Father. God gives faith to receive Christ, to trust Him, and He unites the person to Christ because as, as I've talked about before, the idea that all of these treasures, this redemption, this, this grace, this uh, perfect righteousness, all these things that are in Christ, how do you get to that? Do you just slug your way through and, and try and, and just, or do you just try to be good enough that he might extend it to you? No, the way that you apprehend, the way that you have access to those things that are in Christ, the things that he has won, the treasures that we sing about, the treasures inside of him, the way you get to those treasures is through the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. He unites us with Christ that we might benefit from the things we have no business benefiting from. We're united with him. We are given this cry of faith to trust him. And God brings that regeneration. And so, in our remaining time, how do we know then? How do we, okay, so I know what it is. I know uh, why it's so important. We've started looking at how these things start to happen and, and the work that God is doing. It happens because God has caused a work to happen, but how do I know if it has happened? I'm going to give four things, four, four things that I think that we can look to, at least four things. There are many more, but we're going, to, we're going to consider four of them in our remaining time here. Four things. The first, and a great section of Scripture to study, to, to, to learn and to, to kind of feast on these kinds of ideas, is John's epistle, 1 John. Just to spend, spend time walking through 1 John and seeing what is he outlining for life 
of the believer who is regenerate, who is, who is living the born-again life, who is living the new life. He, he spells it out in some really confrontational language. Um, but here's the first thing. 1 John 3, 9. Mourning sin. 1 John 3, 9, that an evidence that this regeneration has happened is that we mourn sin. Let me read verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I was yelled that scripture by a a street preacher one time who told me that he did not sin anymore. And I said, that's amazing because I'm doing it a lot right now as I look at you. Um, but, but he was saying, no, I'm a Christian and, and therefore I can't sin anymore. And that's not what, what John is talking about right here. John, John is saying that that habitual sin, that that sin, that we war against it, that we war against sin, that we fight against it, that we hate it, that when we fall into sin, that we would be sorrowful. We would actually care. That is the work of God. That we would mourn sin. The great desire of, of one's soul is no longer sin. It's no longer rebellion against God. There is no joy taken in rebelling. There's, there's no joy in turning against God. Maybe momentary flickering of passion, but, but, but not a love for sin. Wholehearted, whole-willed sin, no more. Number two, 1 John chapter 5, that one would trust in Jesus. That, that's a, that is the example given, that the, an evidence that we would see that someone has experienced this new life is that they would trust in Christ. Now, fear and doubt can still happen, but they are not dominant. J.C. Ryle uses this example when he says, to the person who is experiencing those doubts, if you say to them, would you give up all hope and trust in Christ? Would you you turn against him entirely and hope not in any manner or means of of who he is and what he has accomplished? And he said, if the person responds, no, I I can't do that. I doubt, I have doubts, I have have confusion, I have questions, but I I can't let go of that hope. He said, that's new life in you. Fan into flame that hope. Because that's one thing that's never, it's not, fear and doubt are never blessed in the scriptures. Like, oh, yeah, keep questioning, keep being confused. That's not a, that's not a blessed thing. It's, it's when Jesus says to Thomas, do not go on any longer unbelieving, but believe. We're called out of that fear, we're called out of that doubt, but don't let that doubt make you think that you are not a believer. Doubt your doubts, confront them. You don't have to sweep them on the rug, you don't have to pretend like they don't exist, confront them, but don't confront them alone. Theology is best done, just like faith, in community. And and again, by theology, I don't mean what happens in a school. I'm talking about thinking about God. When we think about God, we think about God best when we think about God with other people. 
The third thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. The regenerate, the person born again, fights for righteous living. Let me read verse 29 there of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the, the desire to please God, the desire to do those things like loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, doing those things, that, that's what being, that's the born again life, the, the desire to do those things, the desire for righteousness, that's, that is an evidence of the work of God in bringing new life. First John chapter three, this is the fourth, fourth evidence that we'll go over in this time. And that is a love for the church. Now, you might have been great with the morning sin. You were awesome with the trusting in Jesus. You were, you're, you're decent with the fighting for righteous living. But a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. A desire to reach out in love to the brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how different you might be no matter what social stigmas might prevent that interaction, no matter what prejudices might have been in your past, that you would see first a brother or a sister, that when anger and hatred enters in, that you would be quick to reconcile, that you would hate that sin and call it what it is, whether that's a, a racial prejudice or, or what, a socioeconomic prejudice or whatever it is, you would see that prejudice as sin and you would hate it. And in hating it, you would seek to live into that righteousness that you have been called into. You would leave it behind, no matter what it might cost you. A love for the church, that you would also love to be around the brothers and sisters of Christ, that, that being in fellowship, being in corporate worship settings, being in small group settings, being in casual settings, whatever it might be, that you would come together and that your kinship your brotherhood and sisterhood, that that would be evidence, that that would be a, a clear, purposeful reason for why you are together. And of course, there can be a myriad of common interests. And I mean, of, of all the people that have ever existed in history, we're the only ones that are in this room together right now. I mean, we've got a lot of commonalities already. And so we can interact, though, first and foremost, because of whose we are that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I said, there are cultural oppositions to these things. There, there's a current that kind of sweeps against us that says, no, who you are as an individual and what you experience is, is right and, and don't let anyone kind of speak into your experiences and tell you that they're right or wrong. Or like that, uh, another kind of postmodern thought is that there is no right or wrongness. Like don't even like entertain right or wrong. There's what you like and what you don't like. And I can't, you know, it's kind of like art, you know, like it, do, you, do you kind of, you have your perception and I've got mine and like, let's not, Let's not confront each other in any of these things. But what we see in the scriptures is something that, that really matters as to how we make our choices. When, when we know that we have been made new, when we are a new creation in Christ, that there's a transforming of our minds, that there's a metamorphosis of the very way that we think, not just what we think about, but the very way that we think is being transformed and changed by God then when we come to the questions of what do you do and why do you do them, 
they take on a different form. Because you're going to have to start answering if you are a follower of Christ, if you are someone who trusts in him and you hope in him and you see that you are in union with Christ and that you have this faith in trusting him and that this regeneration, this new life is something that is in you and growing in you, then you have to start answering the question, what happened to you? What happened? What, what was that change? And that change that we see that John, is, that John records as Jesus is having this interaction with Nicodemus is that you must be born again. And throughout this little book that John C. Rowell wrote about regeneration, which is a great, it's a little, it's like a little pamphlet almost. It's such a small book, and I'd really recommend it to you. I've got some other recommendations I'll I'll mention in the Q&A time, but he can't go two paragraphs, even in this short little book, without saying, are you born again, dear reader? Dear listener, are, are you, have you experienced this new life? And And at the risk of sounding like uh, maybe some context that you are a little uh, averse to uh, in, in kind of maybe a traditional church setting, like you have to face that question. I don't care how contemporary like a church setting that you really desire to be in, but like you have to face that question. Like as a, as a person, as a human on this earth and God's creation, you have to face that question. And why not face it now? So, we've considered why this is so important, what this regeneration is, how it comes about, and how we can see it evidenced in our lives. And I hope that you are left with some questions, uh, not just for me in the Q&A time, but questions for yourself. Um, and I do thank you. I know that we, we've endeavored in something quite tricky in this amount of time. Uh, One, to cover something as huge as the doctrine of regeneration. The second thing is to uh, uh, keep our ears uh, tuned and and listening and engaged in these thoughts. But three, and this is probably even more important than uh, volume or uh, anything else, and that's this. We've actually tried to seek a truth that's greater than ourselves. And when we do that, when when we seek a truth that's greater than ourselves, especially when we do that together, I, be- I believe that God does things. I, I, think that he, I think that he opens our eyes and he opens our ears and he opens our hearts to understand things so that when you are faced with those questions, the hard questions, kind of the dark night of the soul questions that you would say, I do not give up my hope in Christ. I, I see that I do hate the sin that is plaguing me. I, I, I'm striving to shake it. I'm striving to live this new life, but it's hard. That you, would, that you would mark these evidences of his work in your life, not your work in your life, but his work in your life, that you would see evidenced in the way that you live, in the way that you think, in the way that you believe, and the way that you pray. And so I, I thank you for taking this time to endeavor with me to seek a truth that is greater than ourselves. We're going to take a little break here, about 10 minutes or so. You can uh, get, a, get a drink, stretch your legs, tip well. These people are very nice, and we want to be nice back. Thank you. All right, if y'all would find your seats. And if you haven't realized by now, if you're in the back, it's gonna be a little harder to hear than in the front. 
All right, and just so you know, next month, um, a couple of things. One, uh, Dr. Mark Genolette uh, is gonna be the speaker. He's a Beeson professor. He spoke for us, was it last year? Last summer, two summers on the Psalms. He's fantastic. Uh, for those of you here, you remember that. Also know that we will make sure that the back door there is covered so no sound comes in next month so we can actually hear a little bit better. Uh, for Q&A time, it's not stump the pastor. Uh, just ask what questions, anything that you might. If Jeff doesn't know, he'll say he doesn't know. We're not going to just, you know, try to lie to anybody or sound really smart up here. And uh, so whatever questions you have, just raise your hand like school and, uh, and Jeff will call on you. All right. Okay. So there's a lot, I mean, I usually, uh, when, I, when I preach on Sundays, I usually have four pages of notes or so, and it's usually like 10, 10 pages. They're prompts, not like manuscript kind of thing. 10, 10 minutes per page. Uh, and so I have about four pages usually, and I try to keep it as under 40 as possible, and that rarely happens. Uh, tonight I had nine pages of notes. Um, so obviously I was trying to, to go as quickly as I could on a number of things. So there might be some areas that are a little unclear and I, I want you to feel free to kind of ask whatever, uh, if I don't, like Joel was saying, if I don't feel like I can really field it that well, uh, I'll say so. And also if it's a really long answer or something like that, that would, uh, be better for us to get lunch or coffee and talk about it. That is a, is a great context too. So, uh, we'll just open it up. So any questions you might have. You'd think that this would be a fear of mine, but it's not, just the, I love silence. <laughs> yes? Um, I'm just curious, you know, during this whole conversation, I wasn't hitting mention of baptism, and I'm just wondering how that interacts, or where that came the, the correlation there, association. Yeah. Um, so do you want to turn to Titus chapter 3? And let me uh, restate the question. So yeah, the question was kind of how baptism works into all of this. And that, that question is, uh, whether you intend it or not, enormous. Like that's, that's a really, really big question because um, we do see with Lydia, like this, this God opening her heart and, and changing her heart and then this movement into her baptism. But there are questions that people have asked like, is that does that re, it's called baptismal regeneration that's that some christian churches the tradition is that at the baptism that's when regeneration happens and so a child if the child is baptized is regenerate at that point and then like throughout their life and then others who still would uh do infant baptism would say no that's uh we're, we're saying that there is a, a blessing a covenant blessing and all that stuff but um but that regeneration is still something that we look to in the future. So there are different views on that. Particularly, it's, a, it's an issue that is dealt with in uh, churches that do infant baptism. So you'd see that as a big question there. Uh, now, for those that do not practice infant baptism, but practice believer's baptism uh, as Redeemer does, um, the relationship that we see uh, in Titus 3, so if we can turn our attention there, let me see if I can pull it up here, um, 
And he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now the washing that's being talked about there is this inward cleansing. You know, we see this a lot as, uh, even with the metaphor of be circumcised in the heart. You know, that language of the internal circumcision and and this language about an internal washing is really the, the metaphors that are being used there, a cleansing inwardly. So the washing that we see in Titus 3, I would, I would say, is not a, a, an allusion to baptism in that context. Although it is using the idea of washing, the idea of baptizing, that metaphor for an inward renewing that the Spirit, uh, a work of the Spirit there. Um, but that is that does get into lots of questions of I mean, there are it's it's kind of divided all over the place. I mean you can find some Anglicans that would be on either side as far as baptismal regeneration. There are Presbyterians on either side. There are Catholics and, and so it, it that is a very big conversation. And I hope it doesn't sound like a cop out when I just say we don't practice the the infant baptism. So like we're we are not um, associating regeneration with the act of baptism. We would recognize a uh, blessing and, and, uh, and a grace that happens as the, uh, and that grace kind of namely being a fanning into flame the faith of the believer when they are uh, obedient in, in baptism, but that it's not the, it's not the work of baptismal regeneration that some Christians would, would adhere to. Now, that difference I don't think is one that becomes um, one where we would necessarily disas- think that it would be necessary to disassociate or not call people Christians or that kind of an issue, but I do think it's an interpretive issue that does have some practical ramifications for how um, we see what this work of, of regeneration is in evangelism and, and those kinds of things. It, it has its place in that. Do you have any further questions about kind of baptism? All right. Martin Swant. I'd love for you to. <laughs> All right. So you know, we see both in scripture, but also in modern times, an association with. Uh, with this is going to be impossible for me to repeat into the microphone. I can already <laughs> guess. You can summarize. Uh, okay. But anyways, um, you know, there's a you know, author connection with emotion and you know, the woman that 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 wept at Jesus' feet, or you know, or you know, the man that couldn't walk that, that dance. Um, and we see in modern times too. But often it's also something that just aren't quite as emotional when it comes to the sermon or to worship. And so, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Just like the difference in, like, sometimes it seems like emotional, it's like a, an, an outpouring, almost like a, a tangible form of, not, not, not really a belief, but it's just like, it's, it's like a response. Okay. So for those of us that aren't going to be emotional with the sermon and worship, Okay. So the the question I will distill it, and and this is what I've got. The, the question is kind of the the role of emotion, and one's emotions in being a regenerate, uh, living in the born again life. Like, what role does emotion play in that? Is that acceptable? Yes. You'll sign off. All right. Dictated, not read. Uh, so. I would say this um, to the person. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna imagine a person is asking this question. They're saying, "I have these 
uh, I go into worship and I'm not like super emotional or I hear a sermon, I'm not that emotional, is that okay? And I would say to the person who's asking, is that okay? They see David dancing before the ark or something and they say, um, I feel like that is inappropriate. You know, whatever it might be. Um, bodies aren't supposed to, to do that. That's, a, that's an unnecessary movement of the body. Uh, so I, I, would, I would answer like this. How, how are your emotions engaged in other contexts? You know, is this, are you, are you a, a really like emotive person? Like, do you, do you just cry at every movie and you, do you, do you dance wildly at every concert and all these things? Like, are you a person that kind of emotes in those, in that manner? Because I think it would be really disingenuous to go into some church setting and then just feel like, well, everybody else kind of acts like this and emotes like this and, and that you would feel like you just had to kind of play the part. I feel like, that's not very genuine. And I think maybe, above all else, like, shouldn't worship be genuine? I mean, even if it's like a little confused or uh, a little, you know, at, at, least, at least let it be genuine. I mean, I think that that's one thing that, that God, through the prophet Isaiah, just kind of tears apart is this half-hearted worship where we just, you know, where we just like, we our hearts not in it like we don't we don't care about these things like it's just not if it's not coming from that place if it's not coming from a true place of who we are and who our being is before the lord then like then no like that that emotive jargon is just useless then moving on the other end of that if you are emotive if you're a person that emotes like in every kind of context like you're very expressive and like those things then, then trying to rein all of that in. Now, we want, to, we want to make sure that we're never a distraction in any context because we want to love our brothers and sisters in such a way that we wouldn't impede on their kind of being and doing in that, in that context of corporate worship. But again, at the very least, shouldn't it be authentic? Shouldn't it be wholehearted? And now, the, my, my demeanor, my personal demeanor, like uh, when I'm not kind of in this kind of context is a little bit more reserved and I don't, I'm not very uh, physically expressive and, and that kind of thing. I do that in this because I try to be seen so people know that I'm up here, you know? Uh, but, but more like privately, unless I'm arguing with you like one-on-one -on -one and I'll use my hands more, but you know, it's, it's, it's more reserved and, uh, and to that end, it would be disingenuous of me to, to try and play into just the norm around me. Now I could learn from that norm, like I could learn from that, that context around me and, and, and grow in how I express things. And, but I think having a strict formula of how someone should be responding emotionally, um, I think that that's a personality thing. And I think that that's a God-given personality thing. It can be cultivated, like I said, it can change, it can, it can do that. And there might be an environment that kind of brings certain things out that you hadn't really seen before. I mean, I don't know how much dancing David had really done previously. I don't, I don't know his, his background in dance. Uh, however, like it's, if, it's, if it's coming from that, from that place of a real heart of worship, then I think that it does need to be appropriate, but in no way does it need to be reserved. Yes.
I'm, so, I'm really, I'm having a hard time. I'm sorry. So the, the question is, uh, I'm a Christian, I have been born again, I, this regeneration has happened to me um, by God's grace, uh, but I keep sinning, and I know that there are only two people here in my heart, it's me and Jesus, I don't think it's him. All right, so, so why is it that, that I keep kind of desiring these things, and this is where, you know, that... Um, kind of going back to what John was saying as far as habitual sin and all of that, like he's, we're talking about a warring against sin. And your emotions, even you, you being able to acknowledge that that is sin, like seeing whatever that thing is, whatever that, that, that is that you're wrestling with and, and repenting of it. Maybe just to give an example, and I'm not putting this on you, but maybe it's pride. Like you just, you just keep wrestling with pride and it's just pervasive. It just keeps coming back. It's like a weed, like you cut it out and, and you're wondering... Well, if it's a weed, like, why didn't get didn't the whole garden get cleaned out here? Like, why how, why are these back? Um, and I, I think that we have to see that while this washing and this renewal, this seed, as as it's being described there in John, First John, is that seed is in us. That it's not. Um, it's not. First off, it's not that desired, loved sin. The fact that you recognize it as sin means that that regenerate heart is, is seeing it appropriately, okay? And then the desire not to, not to do that again, for that to be the last time that you repent of that sin. I think that's another evidence of that regeneration. Um, and, and as, you know, we see Paul, and there's a lot of different views as far as, like, kind of what Paul is exactly saying here, but... But I think that when he talks about how the, how the heart or the mind is willing, but then that the spirit is willing, but then the flesh is weak, I think that the very existence of a willing spirit means that regeneration has come. That's just my take. There are a lot of, a lot of people smarter than me that have a different take of that. But I see that if, if we're talking about the will, that, that, that there is a desire, that the spirit is desiring to do this kind of obedience, but this flesh is so weak. I think he's talking about a flesh that is in need of sanctification. So as we have justification, as we have regeneration, as, and then sanctification, one of my favorite occasions, uh, that sanctification is this, this building up, is this renewing, um, and, and that as we have the regeneration, which is this newness, that there's a sanctification of the flesh, that we would desire it less and less, that we would fight. I mean, this is something that we have to recognize, that God did set us up to where when we were ransomed and renewed and given the mind of Christ, that it's something that we would grow in and that sin would be something that we would still fight. Because he could have said, Lydia, Lydia believes, she's baptized, and then she disappears. And the next person, they believe, they're baptized, and they disappear. That, that's not what he has ordained. And in the scriptures, we see that we, we fight against sin. And, and what I would really call into question is, or not call into question, but what I really want to focus in is not why does this keep coming up? But where is the strength to keep fighting? Where is that focus to keep fighting that sin? Where is the discipline? Where is the time in God's word and in prayer? Where is the 
not just like general accountability, like, did you, yep, did you, yep, all right, let's try better next week. Like, not that, but, but with the real, real community around you that, that presses you on. And then also the, the wherewithal to say, my salvation is not depend, dependent upon how successful I am at beating this sin. My salvation is from the work of Christ, not the works of righteousness. Now, so comment now, fight that sin. Be disciplined, be diligent, be unrelenting, just as that sin is unrelenting. You know, like, like, the, like you know, that, that beast outside the door who is who's striving to devour, to say, no, I, I, I will not be devoured, but, but I will fight against this. And, uh, and then to realize that the, the desire to fight it and the strength to fight it are from God. Yes? Um, so I don't mean to say with this question that I think like the Spirit and God have stopped working in my life. So I guess it's more a question about thinking correctly about what you're saying when you're saying the challenge. Do you mean that it's more of a one-time thing? Is that, or is it something that's always happening? So is it like, am I a regenerate believer or am I being regenerated? Yeah. That, that, that's a great question. So the question is, am I, is it, is it a one-time, I am regenerate, period, or is it an ongoing thing? And that's where I would say, when we're talking, and, and this, is, this is what's really uh, helpful to do in thinking about God and in theology, is where things are distinctly talked about in Scripture to be distinct, when, they're, when we're talking about things that differ to, to acknowledge the differences. And, and so with this, I would say, that the new life that is brought to the believer, that, that new life that cries out, Abba, Father, that recognizes being a son or a daughter, that, um, that desires holiness and the things of God, desires righteousness and desires to leave behind and hates and mourns sin, that is a one-time birth. There is a one-time awakening to trusting in Christ and a one-time and then a continual sanctification the outworking of what that new life is, is continual and progressive. And, uh, and there might be some things that you think that you kind of like conquered 10 years ago that are now all of a sudden it's back. Like you used to be a really angry person and you became a believer and the anger seemed to go away. And now 10 years later, you're married and you have kids and you see yourself flying off the handle as an example. Uh, so, to, to look at that anger and to say, okay, I, I have new life. I have this new thinking and this, this metamorphosis that, that Paul talks about in Romans 12, that there would this be this, this new mind of thinking, but these old things do plague me and I war against them, but, but that it would be progressive. And that doesn't mean that it's always a progress, progressively successful. That might be worth mentioning it's, always not, it's not always this like upshot, like in 96 I was here, 99 I was here, 2001 I was here. Like it's always this, this upshot, like you're always improving. Because there might be some life circumstance that you had never envisioned coming to you, to your front door, and it comes and things kind of turn to shambles. Things that you had built up 
seem to be torn down. But what, it's not, it's coming back to what is that foundation? Is the foundation the rock of Christ? Is that foundation the trustworthy, never stopping, never moving love of God? And that if we come back to that bedrock, then what we build on that will be able to withstand those hard seasons. Although it might seem like there, there are new sins that are coming up, um, but the, what is maintaining is the vigilance, the striving for, for righteousness and the striving against sin. But yes, it is progressive how that sanctification plays out, although it is a definite work of God in bringing that new life because we would just love rebellion and sin without that new work. We would just love and be satisfied and say, you know, maybe I've got some consequences that I don't really like. Maybe there are some morals that I kind of need to shift around. But, like, but actually seeing sin for what it is, rebellion against God, and hating it, that's from God. That comes from no other place. You can, you can entertain some concepts or ideas, but, but living that and believing that only comes from a work of God and, and quickening and awakening those things. Who's next? A question from Martin Swant. Yes, you may. Okay. Yes, it does. So the question is, how would you tell someone who thinks that they are a Christian that they are not one without coming across judgmental? You, you know. All right. So here's, here's, what I, here's what I would say. First off, uh, we need to be very cautious with positioning ourselves as... The, the seer of seers, the soothsayer of soothsayers, who knows if people are saved or not. Um, we need, we need to, to be cautious first of that. Then we move to talking about the gospel and gospel outworkings. Like the list that, that I was kind of going through as far as like, what, what are these marks and these things that we see? And I would, I would encourage, if this was a friend, if this was someone that you cared about, Share how you are hating sin. Share how you are loving righteousness. Share how you are struggling and fighting for those things that you love and believe and trusting in Christ. Share those things. And see what the response is. You know, it's not, it's not your, your job to just like shake every cultural Christian out of their sleep. That's the work of God. But he uses us to be bold in those situations, to be bold. And I would say speaking about those things, speaking about the gospel. and be, So in all boldness, in all honesty, in all confidence, that we would say those things. But deconstructing them, I don't think is necessarily the best place to start. Share your own uh, 
struggles, connect them to the greater story, the story that has redeemed your story. So tell them your story. Acknowledge how your story has been redeemed by the story, the redemption of men and women back to their creator God through sacrifice, through love. As you, as you would do that, um, at some point the dissonance gets louder and louder. You, you realize you're not hitting the same notes. And you're, you're hitting this note and they're hitting that note and the dissonance gets louder and louder and louder. And if the Spirit is, um, is awakening them in that dissonance, that you, would, um, that you would be able to speak truth into that, into that brokenness. Um, but, but as far as just being the, the one who diagnoses that, that kind of a, of a deal, I would, I would caution you um, in how you would... I think that's where I would start, is just not, not, not beginning with that, but beginning with, if this person is a believer, then how are they being encouraged in, um, in those four things that I kind of walk through as far as those evidences? So, does that help? Yes. between faith is important to distinguish which comes first uh, I think it is important to distinguish it's a great question uh, neither comes first uh, that faith and regeneration and union with Christ would be a work of God in someone's life that he would in, in uniting them with Christ through the spirit in uh, opening their eyes to their own sinfulness and uh, desperate state and in uh, directing them into a confidence and a trust, a faith in who Jesus is and what he has declared, I believe that that is a singular work of God in bringing, uh, I've heard people use before like a match as, a, as an example, when the match is struck, is it light or heat that comes first? So, and now what I would also kind of add into that, that doesn't mean the first time this person has heard these things. You know, Lydia was a worshiper, worshiper of God. That means she had heard things about Yahweh, that he was creator, that he was, you know, all these different aspects of who Yahweh is were, were uh, outlined to her to some degree. But then the specific good news that Paul was bringing when Lydia had her heart opened by God to receive that, to hear it, to, as, as it's recorded by Luke, to pay attention, which I think is one of the, I mean, what an amazing concept that God, God would open her heart to pay attention. I just feel like that's like the, the best, just capturing that language of like, just he, he quickens our hearts and he opens our eyes to pay attention to what? To him. We've been paying attention to a lot of things. Lydia had been paying attention to a lot of things. She was a seller of purple things. She was a seller of those purple goods and was probably quite successful and had a lot of money. She'd paid attention to a lot of things. And he opened her heart to pay attention to him. And so when that happened, faith, union with Christ, 
a union with him, a trust in him, all these things came to life. She was quickened. She was dead in her sins and her trespasses and she was seated with Christ and quickened to new life in him. So I would say it is, it is a very important question. What comes first? And I would say God's work comes first. Yes? Can you start it one more time just so I can get it all? To, to a, a Christian who feels like they have to, you know, Christ has to come on that. And um, what, what level of hope, what, what advice do you tell? What do you, what do you, you sit and wait and pray? I mean, what, what do you tell them if it is an action of God to turn their heart and, and there's no action, no works on their heart? Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, or even things that no amount of faith that they can have is actually going to call, cause us to happen as well as, you know, the Lord's will. Okay. That's a great question. So, so uh, to the person who uh, you're saying who th- who thinks that or who is a Christian, what are you saying? Yeah, they say they consider themselves. They can. They consider themselves a Christian, but they have not experienced this regeneration. I would I would say to the person who considers themselves to be a Christian, they have not experienced that which means that they do not have faith in Jesus, that they do not trust him, that their confidence is not based in him. Um, I would say you have participated in uh, a cultural context. You've, You've participated in things. Now, if they're saying, I have faith, but I don't feel like I'm regenerate, I would say that faith is the evidence that you are. So maybe that answers your question. So I would say that, that the, the desire of that person, no matter how small they feel the flame, the flicker might be, their desire to please God is an evidence of his work in their life. And so, and I would even say to anyone that would hear of the things that we've talked about tonight, if they were to um, say, I care about this. Like I, I, I care about it, you know, Fighting sin and, and trusting in Jesus, I care, I care about these things, but I don't know if I, I don't know if I consider myself a Christian. I would I would really encourage them to go back and, and to to be looking at something like First John and to see God God is doing a work in you. And if we just if we meditate on just that first concept that this is a work that God does, that He quickens and awakens us from death into life that if we have any regard for his holiness and our desire to be righteous, that is, that is his work at, at play. That is the evidence of his work and, and not, um, not just some social, cultural participation like believing and hoping in those things is his work. And there might be doubt that needs to be taken on and, and fought. There might be questions that need answers, but this, that, I think those things would be evidences of, of, of his his active and decisive work in regeneration. Any other questions? So, Jeff, on that answer, are you saying that if he says, yeah, I have faith, or that I think it's really clear to me that I'm not just saying, you're saying, he says he has faith, 
if he is professing faith in Christ and a trust in him, not in his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, if he's giving up hope of saving himself and looks to Christ as his Savior, then I would, I would be trusting in his confe- those words of confession. I would trust in that and then say, there's a myriad of things that, that we grow in and, and learn and sin that we would uh, reject and, those, and, and righteousness that we would live into. But that, that declarative statement, I think, would be an evidence of the work of God in their life. Um, now, Again, we, we, I, I would, two things that would inform that. One, my, my confidence in someone's salvation is not in their work, but the work of God. And also that I can't perceive and understand all that that is and that what maturity those things are. And so I'm not going to seat myself in that chair, but I'm going to recognize that God is the one who does this work and I'm going to affirm the confession in this person and I'm going to care for them in discipleship or whatever um, as though they this is all true did that clarify anything that might have been muddled with his answer yeah Yeah, and that would be the, the yeah that there would be discipleship and not not just um, kind of a, a checklist for the self, but but that that would be something that would be done. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it would be the hope that le- that that takes the faith for today into the faith of tomorrow. And so is that hope set on Christ? Any other questions tonight? Thanks for sticking around. No? All right. Well, um, like Joel was mentioning, next uh, next month we will be hosting another one here and it's going to be with uh, Dr. Mark Ginolette. Uh He's um, a professor at Beeson and he's also um, a minister at Christ, not the Christ the King, um, at Cathedral Church of the Advent um, downtown. And uh, he's a, a great friend and a great uh, teacher and so we look forward to having you there. So uh, let, me, let me say a prayer, a blessing for you guys as we go. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the work that you do in us Um, And we ask that you would um, give us hope to trust in you, that you would give us love to love you and to love the people around us well. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.